I generally work on the topic of itinerancy and nomadology <coughs> in the South Asian context. And uh, I look at the moment of intersection between colonial legislation and the way the, uh, it was kind of a, uh, let's call it kind of an enigma when, when the British legislators were kind of uh, puzzled with why would some people voluntarily want to wander. So, uh, so that's the that's the moment of uh, interaction when we had this series of deployment of series of vagrancy acts and so on. So I'm looking at that uh, colonial moment of transition. So what I'm speaking on uh, today is is uh, the idea of nomadology as invoked by although although I'm not referring to Deleuze, Guattari, or Foucault as such, but I'm I'm uh, trying to genealogize this concept in the same way that Deleuze and Foucault invokes, which has got reference to a non uh, instrumental, uh, kind of a gratuitary subject, uh, a, a non-instrumentalist worldview, which has got some reference to, quote unquote, the pre-modern Indian structure of feeling, and which has later been <clears throat> re-invoked, say, for example, by the Beats, uh, the Beat generation were uh, time and again invoking India when they were trying to repudiate the, the, the kind of uh, social conformism they were trying to get away with. Uh, the, the 19th century, some Orientalist scholars were invoking this originary myth of the Romani and Gypsy, and they latched onto the idea of India. So this is this tendency of uh, framing uh, nomadology in terms of latching onto the idea of India. So I'm, I'm trying to look at this parallel emergence of this this uh, invocation and nomadology that has got to do with the making of the idea of India, not India as polity. Uh, so for first a uh, bit of a warning because I India uh, the word India like comes uh, with 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 diverse connotations. Sometimes I use it as an idea. Sometimes I use it as a geographical or a, a political entity. And at sometimes I use it rather uh, anachronistically as, a, as 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 while referring to a concept uh, prior to 1947 or like. Uh, as far as my uh, idea is concerned, I would say this birth of India goes back to either 1947 or at most 19th century with the, if we go by Anderson's hypothesis with the birth of the printing press and so on. So, uh, so this, and, 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 and say for example, Bharat Borsho or, or Hindustan, this, this all other terminologies we have for India, they come with, with, with different connotations. So, so at, at times, like, please forgive my use of India anachronistically. Uh, so that's it. So the recent invocation of the idea of nomadology in the discourse of critical theory by Deleuze, Guattari, Braidotti, and Michel Disserti, among others, uh, and of course I forgot to mention Edward Said here, he invokes the figure of the exilic uh, intellectual and so on, uh, alludes to non-conformity, non-linearity, and a non-instrumentalist life world. Yet nomadology as a radical practice, as symbolic of political dissidence, an ethical responsibility toward the other, and the figure of the nomad as prototype of the non-conformist, effective subject have perpetually exist in the Indian cultural reporter. Well, I'm not trying here uh, to essentialize the idea of India, and I'll, I'll come, uh, I'll, I'll explain that in a while, but please bear with me. I mean, when I say that this idea perpetually existed in India, what I'm trying to suggest is the idea of latching this idea of nomadicity on the uh, on the on the idea on the imagination of India, that, that the perpetuity is there, not in the idea of India. That's what I'm trying to suggest. 
It's the modern perception of the nomad pitted against an overtly instrumental understanding of space, modern techniques of demographic control, and increasing surveillance on mobility that has depleted the diversity in the pre-modern and non-Western practices of itinerancy. In India, the epoch, epo <coughs> sorry, the epochal recursivity in the reappropriation of the discursive trope of wandering as a rhetoric of resistance by the Buddhist Jains against Vedic hegemony in the ancient by the bhaktas and Sufis against statist authoritarianism in the middle, as in the Middle Ages, uh, and by nationalist ideologues against colonial tendency to criminalize itinerancy in the modern, points to the long-standing Indian tradition of nomads striving to achieve alternate utopia. So that, that's what I'm trying to suggest. There's a perpetuity in situating oneself in the discourse of nomadicity while invoking the idea of India. So. First, I'm talking about the Jains and, 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 and Buddhists uh, who, who encouraged nomadicity, uh, nomadology, say, for, ex um, for that matter, uh, which was directed against the Vedic hegemony and the in, the, in the Bhakti and Sufi discourse against statist authoritarianism. And, and writers, say, for example, Rahul Shankritan, he would write a whole book on nomadology, like called Gumakkar Shastra in Hindi, which has been translated into several languages. I'm sure that all of Sankritan's work uh, have been. Uh, so in, in, in Gumakkar Shastra, say, for example, Rahul encourages people to wander. And that's a kind of a slap on the colonial administration. In the 40s, we have series of uh, vagrancy acts being deployed in like several states of India. And right in the 47, 48, maybe, uh, Sankrita and is asking people to do what the colonial administration is precisely forbidding you to do. Uh, the hypothesis here concerning the pre-existence of nomadology in India does not, however, assume nomadology as an a priori historical category, nor does it intend to essentialize the concept of India. On the contrary, this paper revisits the originary moment of the friction between nomadology and statist authority. In the context of the pre-modern India, and critics the impulse, very rarely examined, to map the making of nomadology onto that of India. It points to how different stakeholders, often with competing emancipatory interests, have reappropriated the trope of wandering as a referent for radicalism since the pre-modern. My point of contention here is that there is a perpetuity not in the nomadicity as an ontological category per se, but rather in the political intent of reappropriating it as a cornerstone of radical political dissidence. So why does so many uh, stakeholders, right from the uh, Buddhists to a figure to nationalist ideologue right, like uh, Shankrita and would have to reinvoke nomadology in order to uh, repudiate the statist uh, authoritarianism. So that's that's what I'm trying to ask here. <clears throat> this continuity therefore renders porous the rupture between the pre-modern and the modern. The principal difficulty here in tracing this continuity in rupture is a separatist tendency that underscores what Bruno Latour calls the modern constitution, which conceives quasi-objects as a mixture of two pure forms. As in what I'm trying to critique here is to uh, to, 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 to look at history in terms of this imagination, I, imaginary uh, periodization based on the modern and pre-modern, which is, which is something that, that as a theoretical uh, framework doesn't quite apply uh, to what I'm discussing. Uh, instead, this paper proposes a circulatory method that em emphasizes on co-constitution. What I refer to as co-constitution is an approach that understands history of reception, at least in the curious case of South Asia, by moving beyond questions of comparability or incomparability. 
or conceptual purification by disclosing subtle and complex histories of hybridity and subcutaneous connections between the seemingly discrete or binarized entities, say for example, West, non-West, modern, pre-modern, historical disc discursive, colonial, colonized, etc. At this stage, one may ask, does the word nomad even have an Indian counterpart? Does the word nomad even uh, <coughs> have an in exact Indian counterpart? Notwithstanding the semantic difference, and conceptual congruity or incongruity involved here, the issue here is not so much about the notional inexactitude or exactitude as about what makes the trope of nomadology reappropriable across two epistemic ruptures, first between the modern and the pre-modern, and the second between the non-West and the West. Uh, we uh, need to look into what Derrida calls the chain of signification, the context, the history and contingency that render it possible for a cultural trope, which is to say nom nomadology, polysemic as it might be, to travel and be cloaked in vernacular idioms of radicalism. So, I mean, that's the uh, first critique I, I get, I mean, uh, when, when I wrote my dissertation, PhD dissertation on this, uh, my external examiner, that's the first question I would get asked, does, 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 does the nomad has an Indian counterpart. I mean, all, all words, all terminologies, they have their own connotations and linguistic baggages and so on and so forth. So, I mean, I'm not interested as such whether we do, do we have a like a exact counterpart of nomad in India, but that's not the point. But the idea is, but, but the point is how, how does the idea of nomadology travel across from the pre-modern to the modern or say, for example, the West and the non-West? That's, that's the concern here. So from the point of view of semantics, nomad in that case might not have an exact Indian counterpart. But this is immaterial as long as the concept of nomadicity is assimilable. assimilable. It continues to invoke similar ethos of radicalism and political dissidence across time and cultures. What needs to be asked then is, how does the postmodern trajectory of the nomad, both as a concept and figure, in the, in the context of India, function as a prehistory of the trope of nomadology in the modern? How does the obtrusive Indianization of trope, by which I, I'm referring to Shankritan and figures like that, how does the obtrusive Indianization of the trope of nomadology forge links with its prehistory? What made the trope discursively meaningful when and where it was being reappropriated? Re so the closest approximation for the nomad in the pre-modern Indian culture is the quasi-religious renunciant uh, itinerant. Uh, Patrick Olival points <clears throat> to the dichotomy in the Indian structure of feeling towards renunciation, the right and choice to renounce were, however, restricted, and the different schools had contentious opinions on this. The Shamucheva, this I had the slide here. Like, if, if stop me if, if if this is too unfamiliar, and if you want me to repeat. Uh, so there were these two schools, Shamucheva-Badi and uh, Vikalpa-Badi. Shomuchayavadi is exemplified by Manusriti, strictly uh, stressed on the sequentiality of the four folds of uh, life in the Varna system, the Brahmanical system, Brahmacharya, Gadhastha, Vanaprastha, Shanyasha, uh, and necessarily in this order of progression, which was not required of the Vikalpavadis, which, uh, the examples of which would be the Vashishta Dharma Shastra, Jagavalka Sriti, and so on. Uh, so there was this uh, two two schools. One would stress that this four uh, fold of four folds of life has to be sequential, and they were strict about this. But the Vikalpavadis were more or less flexible. 
दिस मीन्स नोशनली स्पीकिंग अल्प वादी रिजर्व द राइट टू रिनाउंस राइट आफ्टर हिज कम्पलीशन ऑफ ब्रह्मचर्या इन अदर वर्ड्स ही डजेंट ही doesn't have to go through uh, the four uh, steps one by one so he could like complete his uh, brahmacharya the first stage and directly leap on to 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 uh, renunciation on the contrary both bodhiyana gautama say for example do not mention the sequential stages of life as in manaprastha and shanas doesn't occur in these uh, sutras as 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 at all Uh, this implies that the student is being advised to stick to family life uh, from completion of brahmacharya brahmacharya onwards in other words they are being forbidden to renounce and therefore discouraged to renounce towards becoming a sanyasi along the same line manusriti well i had those which i'm like had the verse numbers and all which i for the lack of the slide which i have to like evade uh, but 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 I, i can like in the question and answer session i can i can confirm if some of you had the curiosity but anyway manusriti uh, vishnu vishnu sutra and jagavalka sriti all enforce a household to pay Uh, what they call triple debt uh, as kind of a fine let's call it uh, before renouncing re- renouncing clearly meant to keep the householders from wanting to renounce so if you want to renounce you have to pay thrice whatever the fine what they call the triple debt in other words they're saying uh, there's a steep uh, fine put in place in order to keep you from renouncing surprisingly though manusriti again different verse number here again deems certain renunciants eligible to receive Uh, free gifts and alms, although reserved for the Brahminical uh, practitioners of, of of the Vedic practitioners, this was strictly reserved for them. But I mean, <coughs> what I'm trying to problematize here is Manusriti has like a dual take on it. A couple of verses earlier, it says that you cannot renounce, and then it promises free gifts and alms for people who renounce. So that that's the dichotomy I'm trying to get at. More to it, Artha Shastra series of uh, shlokas clearly. Uh, chart uh, charters the civil rights for wandering ascetics the sl- uh, the shloka in parashar sanghita ishar chandra vidyashagar the 19th century social reformer is known to have anchored on to his last recourse when the orthodox hindus seemed to seem to turn deaf ear to his liberal reformist arguments in favor of hindu widow remarriage uh i mean uh, if, if if some of you are familiar with 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 the legislative argument that went on uh, regarding uh, the widow remarriage he was trying to put forth uh, those 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 uh, quote unquote western liberalist argument which which was devalidated in the name of uh, tradition uh, so so what he did as his last recourse was to and this was his trump card he, he retrieved this one uh, shloka from parashar sangita saying that uh, uh that sanctioned the widow to remarry in certain cases which included besides the husband's death him having become a and the phrase is called pro probajite in other words a renouncer ascetic so probajite is 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 having completed the four folds of life you you just renounce and go to the forest and and and, and so on so the legislative text uh, by which i refer to the parashar sanghita uh, bears testimony to the fact that the practice of renunciation was at least until that point of time acceptable uh so th- these are the series of acceptability that i'm talking about and then i have already talked about that that the the uh, shlokas and the and the and the sritis um, uh, that that forbid you to renounce so these contradictions in a sense point to one central enunciative paradox because the classical quote unquote hindu scriptural take on the issue of renunciation was 
indeed aporetic, the practice of wandering in what may loosely be called pre-modern India was simultaneously being tolerated and discouraged. So that's the problem I'm trying to get at. So it, there are some schools who are tolerating it, some schools who are encouraging it, and some schools who are prohibiting it. How we perceive the world is, for, or for that matter, the categories we deploy to understand the world are grounded in systems of values and beliefs adopted by certain, certain episteme, its interpretative frameworks, prejudices, and dispositions in some of the prevalent paradigms. And this is like I'm stealing from Foucault. Uh, our, our heuristic truth claims are in fact uh, ex post facto reconstruction of realities, uh, wherein our narratorial articulation of uh, relevant categories in term reconfigure and recontextualize the categories. And this is what, what Ian Hacking calls the looping effect. Say, for example, some a category which is our object of study, uh, we, the more we talk about it, the category gets redefined. So, say, for example, and, and Ian Hacking talks about scientific and biological categories. Say, for example, a quick example would be, say, for example, malaria. I publish a paper, or paper on malaria. So the object of study, malaria as an object of study gets redefined. So the second paper you write on, you are not writing on malaria as such that it existed before, but you are commenting on the category on which I have already uh, put my discourse forth. So that, that's it. So. Uh, thinking in these terms, uh, the idea of renunciation in the Indian tradition has to be understood with reference to the notion of social constructivism, which among other things have heavily impacted juridical political apparatuses. Uh, this has led uh, into interferences in the utilization of categories, in this case renunciation, which have similar ethos in different contexts or invoke totally competing value systems within the same uh, context. An example would be, say, for uh, like... Uh, uh, within the fold of uh, Hindu Brahminical system, it invokes two different kind of value systems along the range of encouraging and discouraging. On the other hand, you see it invokes the idea of, of, of uh, such certain aspect of radicalism when it comes to the Buddhists and the Beats. So that's what I'm referring to when I say which may invoke, uh, which may have similar ethos in different contexts or invoke totally competing value systems within the same context. This explains why the Hindu scriptures evolving over a few thousand years and therefore often contradictory are torn between whether to approve or disapprove renunciation. However, the later Dharma Sutras, by starting to tolerate the hitartho discouraged act of renunciation, in principle res resolve to subsume all internal differences. The heterogeneity, the aporia within the fold of Brahminical system now to crystallize as homogeneous cultural monolith against its contendents as other, which is to say the Nastika school uh, of which the Buddhists in fact were the most prominent. Uh, so the, now the textual uh, crystallization of Manusriti, a text, I mean if, again if you go by uh, Anderson's hypothesis, this, this, this is again a 18th, 19th century phenomenon. I mean the text could have ex ex existed long back, but I mean the crystallization of text happens with the, with, with the crystallization of the pr printing press a text from the pre-literalized oral culture and with indeterminable date and authorship is likely to have coincided with the emergence of Buddhism. So what I'm trying to point here is uh, there must be a time lapse between a text being existing in time and being crystallizing for a text that is uh, that in, in, in oral text. So there's a time lapse between, between um, it being existing and it being uh, crystallizing. One has to note in this context that the rudimentary step in the quest for salva salvation of a Buddhist monk, Sramana, 
uh, was to renounce the family. In other words, given the core importance of the family in the pre-Manusriti Hindu thought, the Buddhist renunciation of the family was a symbolic subversion of the Brahminic, Brahminic system altogether. On the flip side, Hinduism showed up uh, with a more diversified view on renunciation as evident in Manusriti uh, to self-assert a necessarily Hindu identity in contrast to Buddhism. Again, what I'm trying to argue here is uh, there were internal differences within the uh, fold of, of uh, the Vedic practitioners within, within the Brahminical system as such. So within, uh, during the time of emergence of Buddhism, uh, there has to be this consolidated identity of Hinduism as a category in order to construct which uh, there was a solidification and there was a homogenizing and flattening of differences that may have existed uh, within the internal differences within, within the Hindu schools. Uh, and, and, and that helped them to recast this identity. I mean, when uh, we're talking about Vinaylal, who writes this uh, introducing Hinduism book, which is, I think, um, like an OUP publication, like he, the first line the book begins with is Hinduism can, can be anything to anyone. Uh, so that's it. So, I mean, if Hinduism can be anything to anyone, it cannot be recasted as an identity against another uh, subversive group, which is to say the Buddhism. So there has to be uh, I, the, the, all the internal differences within uh, the folds of identities has, has to be flattened and, 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 a, and, and a monolithic identity has to be recasted. That's what I'm trying to argue. The renouncer in, in the Vedic tradition would wonder in order not to develop any attachment either with the lay community or with fellow monks. And this is in the Vedic tradition. And there's a, there's a radical difference with, with the Buddhist tradition that I'm trying to get at. One has to be careful in this context to distinguish between the individual renouncer who isolates himself totally, and I'm using himself deliberately here because the Vedic tradition is masculinist to a certain extent. Uh, I mean, it's only the Buddhist system that allowed renunciation for the women. I mean, sannyas, uh, for that matter, wasn't allowed uh, for, for women in, in, in the Vedic tradition. So isolates himself totally. In short, the ideal ascetic and the one who opts out of society but joins a group of renouncers. So that's the, the wanderers endorsed by the Vedic discourses lived outside of the society while those of the post-Vedic period, and this is Romila Thapar I'm quoting, were seeking to establish a parallel society. Uh, and this is the key uh, thing here I'm trying to get at, this parallelism and this, this, this invocation of radicalism. The ascetic, ascetic, that is the uh, sannyasi in the Vedic tradition, earned his right to renounce only after completion of social obligations as laid out in the Brahminical scriptures, thereby complying with the Vedic dictates and maintained a solitary existence which did not require to break the casteist taboos. Uh, in, in, in other words, a sannyasi in the Vedic tradition would have fulfilled all the four uh, folds, uh, those, those four folds of uh, life in order to get to san graduate to uh, become a sannyasi. In other words, he doesn't have to break the castes taboos which uh, the Buddhists were up, uh, up to. Along the same lines, uh, Romila Thapar attests, and I quote here, whereas the ascetics, by which she means uh, sannyasis, were figures of loneliness working out their salvation, each one for himself, the renouncer was concerned about other people, and his concern was expressed in his desire to lead others along the path which he has found. End quote. Thinking in these terms, the Buddhist shramanas, or for that matter, wanderers from other non-Vedic minoritarian cults, 
Jainism would be another example, loosely termed as heterodox sects, were radicals for the embodied political dissidents. So they were up to dis dismantling the status quo. Notwithstanding all internal differences, the non-Vedic cults maintained a relation of complementary opposition among themselves, while the relation with Brahminism was of uh, dialectical or binary opposition. And, and, and this is something very important. Say, for example, the relation between Buddhism and Jainism, they also had minor, minor uh, internal differences within themselves. This is what I call complementary opposition. But in, in as, as, so far as, as, as putting up a resistance against the Vedic dictates and authoritarianism, uh, um, the chief opponents were, were, were Brahminism. So that's what I call dialectical op op opposition. So in, 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 in for the Buddhist Shramana, therefore, the root of contradiction of Shanyasha as, as, as a social phenomena lay in the negation of the social function of Garhastha by the Shanyashi. So in other words, what I'm trying to say, the Shanyashi becomes a Shanyashi only after having fulfilled the Garhastha and for that matter all the four folds of life. But the Buddhist Ramana on the, contra on the contradictory, he doesn't have to undergo all the four folds. And he is, in, in, in to borrow the Vedic uh, ethos, he was abstaining from productive and reproductive labor, productive labor and reproduction, and, and, and so on, what was required of, uh, otherwise required of the Shannashi. The Sramana's denigration of the Sannasi's renunciation was thus his symbolic anathema to, broadly speaking, the Brahminical ideals. According to Uma Chakravarti, and this is a long quote uh, uh, for which I would have preferred uh, the slide. Uh, this is Uma Chakravarti's work on early Buddhism. And please bear with me, this is a very, very long quote. Uh, what distinguished the period in which Buddhism arose was the appearance of the Paribrajak or the Sramana. The characteristic feature of the Paribrajak was their state of homelessness. In the Pali text, they are described as moving from home to homelessness. The Shramana or the Paribrajak broke especially those rules that applied to the householder, Grihastha, the first stage of the life. And he shunned all the tokens of Vedic culture, such as the sacred thread or the symbolic tuft of hair on the head, and he did not perform yagya. The renouncer and the householder were therefore opposed to each other, and they represented two parallel modes of existence in the heterodox tradition. The traditional antagonism of the two categories remained a constant feature of Indian society. The emergence of the phenomenon of renunciation in opposition to Brahminical tradition permeated the atmosphere of the time to such an extent that the period as a whole has been characterized as the age of Shramanas and Brahmanas." Uh, end quote. So what I'm trying to argue he here is it is against the backdrop of this political-historical scenario that the post-Vedic semantic turn characterizes a sharp bifurcation in the taxonomy of renunciation, wherein nomadology evokes totally bipolar connotations. And this explains why what I mentioned in the beginning, uh, we have like in the Indian tradition there are two, two, two um, different, two takes on renunciation which cannot be more different. Uh, from the orthodox Hindu point of view, the Sramana was a bad wanderer, precisely because the Sramana was a political dissident who intended to topple the status quo. For the Sramana, however, the Sannyasi was the bad wanderer, for he complied with the Brahminical casteist ideals. So what I'm trying to get at is, at this historical juncture, there emerges this uh, <coughs> uh, 
fervent obsession to distinguish between the good of good wanderer and the bad wanderer. Benjamin Walker's entry on travel in his famous encyclopedia of Hinduism clearly mentions that, I quote, the tendency to travel received a considerable setback under Brahminical dispensation, particularly after the revival. Uh, revival, he doesn't mention uh, what revival he is referring to, but I, we can make sense of he's referring to the Gupta era, which is credited for a liberal uh, Hindu revival after after the rise and spread of uh, Hinduism. So what he writes is the tendency to travel uh, received a considerable setback under Brahminical dispensation, particularly after the revival, revival with a capital R, uh, following which heretical Buddhists continue to travel, end quote. While the Buddhist uh, heresy, uh, quote unquote, invoked fear of spiritual or casteist contamination from traveling, the figure of the renun renunciant became all the more charismatic. The linchpin for the of the renunciant's counterpunch to the Brahminical system, relying heavily on a casteist division of labor, was his complete withdrawal from manual labor, material possessions, and systems of reproduction. It is this iconoclasm that contributed to the renouncer be being recognized as a symbol of moral authority, evidently derived from our ability to repudiate the society as it is. It is precisely, I mean, there's a historical jump here, I mean, for the in, uh, interest of brevity and for the interest of time, uh, like there's a, like I'm, I, I'll directly come to, to, to the beats now, but there's a jump of like few thousand years here, uh, but I'm trying to like latch on to this, this, this idea of uh, nomadicity. Uh, so it is precisely because of this historical groundedness by which I'm referring to this, um, contradiction in the taxonomy between, and, and the contradiction between the good wanderer and the bad wanderer, uh, the, of, uh, that the bits bent upon lampooning all societal conformism, uh, the, pre the prevailing customs of the Fordist economy, the increasing standardization of what uh, Herbert Marcuse calls the one-dimensional man, forged links with quote-unquote India. Uh, it is therefore not without reason that a bunch of modern American avant-garde, ironically indeed, chose back to look into ar the archaic practice of nomadology and turn to India for their inspirational stimuli. In fact, all the beat figures, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, Gary Sandler, Kenneth Rexroth, Bob Kaufman, were influenced by Buddhism at some point in their careers. And I quote uh, Jack Kerouac here, what really influences my work is the Mahayana Buddhism. And mind you, the original Buddhism of Gautama Sakamani, I don't know what original is and which original he is referring to, uh, of India of old, uh, uh, again, I mean, uh, very amorphous, uh, this, this uh, phraseology. Uh, so he writes, what really influences my work is Mahayana Buddhism, the original Buddhism of Gautama Sakamani, the Buddha himself of India of old. Notwithstanding the anachronism, because in all likeliness the Buddha predates India, I mean, I mentioned this as a warning, like when I refer to India, I, I, I take it as a 19th century concept. Uh, so in all likeliness, Buddha predates India. There is an element of revivalist undercurrent that cuts across Kerouac's imagination of what he calls the India of old. Uh, Kerouac never traveled to India for that matter. Uh, rather, the India, rather the idea of India had traveled to him. 
what is of note uh, in 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 the course of its curious trajectory however is the resurfacing of the trope of wandering laden with an immanent sense of emancipatory subversivity which characterized the emergence of buddhism in india so the parallel i'm trying to draw between the emergence of buddhism the historical context in which buddhism emerged in india and the set of tasks uh, uh, the beats had before them in 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 the context of the american society uh, in his letter to ginsburg kerouac writes i find indian buddhism uh, impossible to practice uh, buddhism is an ascetic way of life uh, tacked on to a philosophy uh, asceticism and yogism are hard on a big boned fellow like me sensual wine lover women lover like me bum like me i think i'm becoming a wandering taoist bum uh end quote so one cannot help at this point but ask uh, and this i'm referring to the uh, uh, quotation that i read before not this one uh, what or when is quote unquote old in kerouac's india of old Uh, what exactly is original buddhism according to it which origin is it referring to what is indian buddhism anyway uh, kerouac does not have answers for all this but the lack thereof points to how looping effects the narratorial articulation of a concept the way it is written about and spoken of concerning india in turn constructs the idea of india uh, this indophilia of the bits had actually started with gary sender and his wife juan kaiser who after having studied buddhism in japan traveled extensively within within india uh, from january to april uh, 1962 they were joined by alan ginsberg and peter orlovsky who continued to travel in india still uh, until may 1963 so i mean they started their travel together and uh, uh, peter stayed back uh, after <coughs> uh gary and his wife had left so during his travel in india ginsberg observes every middle class householder and this is a quote uh, every middle class householder is expected at the age of 45 or 50 after he has founded family and business to retire from the world take brahmachari vows and orange robe and wander on the on the road in india with no possessions living free in ashrams there is again an oh sorry and the quotation ends here yeah uh, so i mean there is again an explicit orientalist tinge uh, to ginsburg's observation i mean no man, no nobody in the um, 1960s india were taking brahmachari vows and disposing everything and wandering on the street uh, this is of course imaginative the point however is to map the historical groundedness of the trist he observes between the trope of wandering and the idea of india In his letter to Jack Kerouac, Ginsburg informs, "I quote: I'll go on a short, weird Cuba trip and come back and write big revolutionary poem, attacking Red China and U.S. and then go to India and shut up." <laughs> End quote. This imagination of India as a site, accommodative of wandering radicals and political dissidents, and the trope of wandering as articulative of dissidents, have a prehistory in, to borrow Kerouac's. Uh, evocative phrase the india of the old in which is to say the buddhist precedents to be precise uh, wherein the will to wander originated from a will to resist this prehistory to take another example uh, also manifests in the provocative am i doing good with that right yeah 
the prehistory to take another example, also manifests in the provocative Orientalist claim that the Roma community had originated from India. I mean, this is a very fairly well-known uh, claim uh, by now and fairly recognized and uncontested to certain degrees. Uh, the premise of this claim, more often than not, if you are aware, it rests on a demonstrable phonetic similarity between uh, Romani uh, words and, 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 and certain words in Indian languages. So the methodology of this pattern of argumentation is dubious. Um, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, if you ever this search, I mean, this this search for 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 the origin is uh, based on a structural uh, linguistic analysis and 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 and, and, and the structural analysis of Romani languages. So what they do is like kind of a lex lexicographical analysis of the Romani words and they correspond with the Indian words and they point out the homophony and then and, and the pattern of argumentation is they say look you have homophony which means the Romani is originated in India. Uh, the Orientalists could have been right in their claim but my argument here is not based along the lines of uh, truth or falsity. What I'm trying to get at is, 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 is their pattern, is their methodology of argumentation. Uh, so what I'm trying to ask is, is homophony methodologically speaking a sufficient proof uh, for the originary connection uh, that the Orientalists were set out to establish? Better still, is the claim analytically arrived at or synthetically prioritized uh, and engineered in order to commensurate with the uh, Orientalist viewpoint? So the methodology of the pattern of this argumentation is dubious. For homophony, to say the least, might not necessarily imply etymological connection, but could have rather plainly be coincidental. There could be a homophony between a French word and a Romani word. You never know, but that doesn't mean the Romani is originated in France. I mean, that's what I'm saying. The pattern of argumentation is, is what I'm suspicious about. They could be right or wrong. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm concerned with the in. Uh, I'm not concerned with the genuinity or ingenuity of the claim, but rather the politics of what Derrida calls the genealogical fantasy. What is, the what is the historical referent against which the claim was mounted? Uh, the inheritance uh, specifically legitimized the heritageization of the trope of nomadology as a symbolic register of cultural nationalism. Heritage, though suggestive of an immanent sense of inheritance, is rather engendered. What is construed and articulated as heritage is embedded in a cultural politics wherein different actors jostle to determine which inherited artifacts are to be valid as markers of eth ethnic identities and what to be disavowed. Accordingly, Rahul Shankritan's insinuation, and this is what I'm reading, is from his Gumakar uh, Shastra, uh, insinuation that, quotation, those who are wandering outside of India for the last seven centuries are basically nomads from India. Uh, is reflective of his inheritance of an Indian Buddhist past from within the heterogeneous totality of India. So, I mean, from again, like the whole range of pastness and the diversity in the take on nomadicity that what I cited in the first half of the paper, among which Sankritana anchors his observation on 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 the Buddhist uh, on the on, on the Buddhist lineage. There are, one must note in this context, at least two different Indias that are at play in Sankritan's discourse. First, the India of the present, that of his contemporaneity, and second, the India from seven centuries back. 
While the idea of India has yielded diverse iterations during the last seven centuries, Sankritan's unwavering conviction seems to hint at how the ethos of wandering functioned as a long-standing cementing vector that validates the collective identity of, in Benedict Anderson's words, the imagined community Indian. So, I mean, I'm trying to point at his tendency between between uh, this his imagination of India that he traces up till seven centuries. So. Uh, without being reflective of the fact that the idea of India has undergone several transformations in the seven centuries. It can be gleaned from the kernel of Shankritan's hyperbole, how nomadology as an inventory of cultural nationalism, as a continuity within ruptures, has actually sufficed for centuries, for seven centuries. In his Gumakkar Shastra, Shankritan goes on to list some 38 Romani words uh, which again I had the list of, I'm skipping it here, with their Hindi counterparts like list A, list B, and points to the homophony between the two sets. Inspired by the Orientalist schema, he argues that the homophony proves that the Romanis and the Gypsies originated from India. He ascribes his claim to, quote-unquote, some linguists who, who doesn't mention. Uh, taking an identical approach, Sri Pantha, uh, this is his book from 94, uh, still more uh, surprising. It's a Bengali book, Gypsir Pai Pai, roughly translates in the footprint of the gypsies. Uh, this is a 1994 publication, takes an identical approach and prepares a more exhaustive list of a few hundred words spanning across some 15 pages in order to validate the claim. So it's 15 pages long list of words. Uh, Sripantho, however, and this is a pen name by the way, I mean, uh, Sripantho, however, cites a few linguists who have worked on the theme, although he does not use quote unquote proper academic citation, which keeps me from verifying the sources. So the efficacy of the methodology deployed here, I reiterate, is dubious. Nevertheless, the fact that people since, eight, since the 18th century, including Sanskrit until Sripantha in 1994, have been up to, quote-unquote, rediscovering this primordial connection between India and the ethos of wandering is, it is in itself fascinating. While for the Orientalists, the thematic trope of wandering was characteristic of Indianness, for the Beats, it functioned as a leverage to mount iconoclastic ethos. Yet, the axiomatics of these two instances of reappropriation are in, in principle illustrative of one central problem. The pervasive territor territorialization involved in the cultural association between wandering and the, and the imagined notion of Indianness. It demonstrates how a certain residual structure of feeling in the Indian thought, nomadology as symbolic of the pre-modern radicalism, travels across time and space and resurfaces as, to borrow <coughs> Clifford's uh, evocative phrase, as a traveled site in the modern to reconstruct the idea of Indianness. Uh, I think I'll better uh, stop here. Uh, yeah, so what I'm trying to problematize, I'll, I'll reiterate, like is this, this ima ima imaginative periodization between the modern and postmodern uh, so this idea of this 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 um, establishing the link between wandering and ethos of Indianness, probably what it does is renders uh, porous this imaginative tendency 
to 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 look at history in terms of modern pre-modern uh, and, and 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 so on so 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 more. so uh, what it does uh, uh, insist us to look uh, uh, into ideas of modernities and notions of modernisms in the plural uh, and 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 uh, inextricably in relation to and not necessarily in opposition uh, with with their western counterpart or yeah that's it i'll stop here